Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, Carmen and Jeff talk about the common forms of bearings, both plane bearings and rolling element bearings, also known as anti-friction bearings. I occasionally use the term roller bearing when I should have used the term rolling element bearing because there is a type of rolling element bearing known as a roller bearing. But hopefully you can overlook that error and will find enjoyment in this episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 115, Bearings, August 21st, 2016. So, Carmen, do you have trouble telling which direction is north? Uh, I mean, if you want absolute precision, I can't, I can't do that one for you. But if you want a general idea of where north is, I'm usually pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. This is just standing in any room of the house or this is, you know, traveling down the road? Uh, yeah, kind of both. Um, I mean, I've been in my house for two years. I know where the sun rises. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, yeah, no, traveling down the road. I really like, uh, you know, some people just fly around on Google Earth and check out interesting places. I like the top-down view from Google Maps. And Uh especially if I'm going somewhere new, uh, like I got a trip to Austin coming up here soon, uh, a little mini vacation for a weekend, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll study the layout of the city a little bit before I get there, you know, we're in the general direction of the airport, you know, where the bars are from the hotel, the breweries, all the important stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, living in Raleigh or Buffalo, my hometown, you know, I I got a good direction of where north, south, east, west is, all that good stuff. Um, and I, I managed to not get lost everywhere else and only rely on my phone when I need it. So uh, I, I do okay. Right. And, and are you the type when you look at Google or your Google Maps or whatever your mapping program is, do you do you have the map turn directions to be in the same direction as the car or do you always have the map uh, pointing upward as north? Uh, for the most part, I always keep the maps pointing north. That, that yeah, helps a lot too. to learn which direction's which. <laughs> Me too. I don't. I a lot of people don't. I just. I wondered if I was the only weird one that yeah. forced it to be pointing north all the time. Yeah, it, it depends on how how frustrated I am. You know, if the wife and I are arguing over whether or not we did miss that turn. You know, because is, is it right or sharp right? You know, did we get yeah. on the right one? Then then I may flip it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the most part, I keep north at the top. Right. Well, it is when you're, when traveling, it's a important factor to have a, a sense of your bearings. Uh, which direction is which, uh, where you're headed. But there are other parts of the engineering field where bearings are important. Uh, and we're not talking about the uh, the sense of direction, uh, but the uh, components that allow multiple units to move relative to one another, usually with very little friction. And so we thought that we'd spend this episode of the Engineering Commons talking about bearings. Excellent. I know next to nothing about bearings. <laughs> So I will play the part of listener who does not know what's going on. Okay. And and I will play the part of a co-host who does not know what he's talking about. So I think between the two of us, we'll be, we'll be in good shape. It's going to be one for the record books. <laughs> Although before we jump into bearings, you know, yeah. knowing your bearings directions is probably important for some fields. I mean, Adam would probably get fired if he built the north-south highway going east-west. 
you would think that, but I know that the you know the the numbering system on the highways they have the even numbers going east west and the odd numbers going north south. Yeah, but if you got confused as to which direction was which, you just started laying asphalt. Yeah, but but there are, there are sections of those highways that travel for a, a number of miles going, you know, the wrong you know east west when they should be going north south or vice versa. True. So, I guess you'd only be in trouble if you're designing the uh, the linking system between two opposite roads. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Well, so do you want to launch into this uh, this bit about bearings? Sure. Will this help me make my skateboard go faster? Uh, no, probably not. Damn. But it might. <laughs> do you have a skateboard? Uh, a longboard, yes. A longboard, yeah. wow. And, uh, you know, growing up, I was always rollerblading, skateboarding, riding a Razor scooter. And, yeah, that's the extent of my knowledge of bearings. I knew if the wheels didn't spin when you gave them a flick, uh, there was, they were probably dirty bearings. Okay, well, you, so you you know about you know something about dirt and bearings. That's important. <laughs> you don't want it there. You don't want it there. There's something about lubrication. You want them to spin spin uh, at high speed for a long time. That's good. Yes, low friction. You do know something about bearings. I guess I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, episode's <laughs> over. That's that's right. We're done. Um, well, so the the word bearing is derived from the verb. Uh, to bear, and that is uh, to support one part with another. You know, early bearings were really no more than surfaces that would would support some other part. Maybe you had a shaft, you needed to support it, and you'd have to turn it very slowly. Uh, and so you maybe cut a notch into a uh, uh, a rectangular part, and then you could drop the the shaft, uh, the tree trunk, whatever you had as the shaft, into that notch, and it would sort of stay in place. You could rotate it, and as time went along. You know, that became more sophisticated. The notches became semicircles, you know, half half circles uh, that you could drop a more uh, cylindrical shaft into. And and as we did this, this, the speed at which you could spin something increased. And eventually, they, these bearings, these devices allowed us to spin or slide uh, one part relative to another. Instead of being integral to the, the mechanism, became discrete components that we could add to our system, allowing us to have good performance and also have allowing us to do maintenance. That is, if when the bearing wore out, we could replace that uh, and put a new bearing in and we didn't have to scrap the entire machine in order to do so. So uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about discrete mechanical components known as bearings. Cool. So as I mentioned, uh, bearings are machine elements that allow mechanical components to move with respect to uh, one another and usually do so with minimal friction. So we need to talk first about the types of relative motion that bearings allow. And usually they're of one of two types. They're either rotary, uh, that is the, the, you have a shaft and you have a housing. Uh, and usually, usually, not always, the shaft moves within the housing, that is the housing is stationary, and you want the shaft to move about its longitudinal axis. Uh, sometimes you want the shaft to stay still and you want something to move about it, and that's that's okay as well. That would be like the wheels on my skateboard. Right. Or if it's not rotary motion, then we may have linear motion. That is, we want, may want to slide something in a straight line to uh, experience translational movement. And so that would be, uh, we have devices that allow that known as linear bearings. So it would be like your, your screen door or something on your house, sliding glass doors? Yeah. That would be, that would be an example of, of a, uh, a linear bearing. Cool. Playing along. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're doing great. 
Uh, and so, uh, it's like an adult w- version of a kid's show. <laughs> Click the wheel. <laughs> we need a we need a cheesy song here in the middle. We'll see what we can do. Okay, we'll get the guy who does the theme music. <laughs> Excellent. So, a, a distinction to be made is when we're doing this. Remember, the idea of a bearing is supporting a load, and so especially with the rotary motion, the important thing is to remember that if we have a, a let's say we have a housing and the the shaft is completely uh, horizontal uh, with all gravity pointing down through the through the bearing, then that's a radial load that is in the same direction from the center of the bearing out through what we'd measure as the radius of the bearing. Uh, that load is going through, you know, from the ID, from the center point out through the OD. And so that's radial, what we'd call radial loading. I, ID and OD? ID being in inside diameter. Oh, or okay. inner diameter, OD being outer diameter. Gotcha. Now I know how you feel, and I just go off on some op-amp parameters. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Right. And so that's that's radial loading, which is usually what bearings are, are really good in. If instead we take the shaft, and it's in the same configuration, but now instead of having gravity pushed down through the bearing, we push along the length of the shaft. That is, uh, we push on one end of the shaft, and at 90 degrees to the radius of the bearing or its circumference, then that is what we call a thrust load or an axial load. And so sometimes we have need for supporting an axial load from the shaft, and, and it takes a special configuration or a special type of bearing sometimes to handle that axial or thrust load. So uh, the distinction is in, in rotary bearings, we have to handle both radial loads and thrust loads. So would the difference between radial and thrust be, uh, you know, you said the direction is at 90 degrees. So would there be a net torque then with a, a thrust load as opposed to a, a radial load? Mm, no. So uh, basically, if you if you take your standard ball bearing on your skateboard okay, and you put the skateboard on the ground and you stand on the skateboard, you're mostly putting a radial load on those bearings. Okay. Because your your weight is going through the through the skateboard, through the shaft, you know, to the wheels, but the loading is basically... Just straight down. Yeah. So the load on the shaft gets transferred from the inner diameter of the bearing out through the outer diameter of the bearing and from the outer diameter of the bearing to the skateboard wheel. If you, uh, if you take your skateboard and now you start to, you try to pull the, the wheel straight off the axle, that's a axial load or a thrust load. Gotcha. You're, you're trying to pull this shaft out through the center of the bearing. So when you start, pumping your skateboard to go you you would maybe apply some axial loads there as you go down the ramps and everything well cert- certainly as as your weight shifted from side to side uh instead of being in a straight line so if, if everything were moving in a straight line with the direction the wheels were pointed then that would all be pretty much radial loading gotcha okay i think a better a better instead of the skateboard we'll go longboard here and split hairs so you know how okay. snowboarders you know they carve down the hill yeah, you can, you can do that with a skateboard, but a longboard is more meant for that sort of uh, riding. So if you're on a longboard and you're trying to go down a steep hill and control your speed, you're you know you're you're carving from side to side, and it's not just a, a simple straighten down you know, straight down motion. Yeah. So to the extent that your side to side motion causes the skateboard wheel to want to slide across the ground, and friction resists that and, and puts a force across the face of that wheel to avoid that skidding possibility, and that resultant force in the horizontal plane acts to pull the wheel off the end of the shaft, uh, then that would be an axial or thrust loading. Gotcha. Okay. 
trying to keep all these new terms straight in my head. So we have uh, really two means of friction reduction with these bearings, because one of the things we want to do is we want to allow this movement, this relative movement of these two parts, usually shaft and housing, or, or uh, you know, if we have sliding, you know, there's two parts we want to slide relative to one another. We want to do that without, uh, usually with little friction. If we want it to happen with friction, it's usually called a break. <laughs> okay. So we normally want this thing to happen with low friction. And so we can do that in really uh, three ways. We can do it with contact, or we can do it with non-contact, and we can do it through flexure. Okay. So let's talk about the the contact method of reducing friction, which bearings do. So uh, the first one is just low friction sliding. And so the idea is that if we have these two surfaces and we want them to slide, we, we want there to be low friction, you know, we want to just make it so slick between the two surfaces that there's very little friction. Polish the surfaces, whatever we need to do to lower friction so that the two uh, surfaces will slide against one another very easily. The, the next, of course, way to do that was what uh, you mentioned earlier. We use the wheel. Or if we don't use the wheel, we use a ball. We use something that rolls. And so now we have rolling elements and those rolling elements reduce the friction from what it would be just from pure sliding. Okay, so those are our two methods of contact friction reduction. We can at times get into non-contact uh, friction reduction. And so that can come through, usually through it is creating a film uh, of lubricant on the bearing surface. And so if that, uh, if we have an external source something sort of pumping fluid in to create that cushion that fluid film that's called hydrostatic uh bearing and we we need to we have that external pressure source uh force enough just a thin liquid film uh between the two surfaces and so it lifts you know it sort of uh, uh lifts the one surface up above the other and and they're sliding they're riding on that film and they're no longer touching and so that greatly reduces uh, would, uh, like one of the old, it's funny we get to say old now for this. Uh, one of the old, um, magnetic hard drives where the head is riding on a thin layer of air, you know, like tiny, tiny, you know, maybe a micrometer thick of air, give or take. I don't know the exact dimensions. Would that, would the air be like a bearing in that case? It, it, it is. And, and that is, in fact, the other type of uh, fluid film uh, bearing, and that's a hydrodynamic fluid film. Oh, okay. Cause the air is moving. Yes, and so the difference is that in a hydrostatic, you have an external pressure source. Mm -hmm. In a hydrodynamic, where dynamic means it is caused by the movement, the, the movement of the parts creates the distribution of the film. And in this case, it's the air uh, that's, that's uh, distributed so that your, your head, your magnetic pickup head, rides above the, the plates. Gotcha. Excellent segue points for me. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're doing great. <laughs> So the thing that's nice about this this uh, hydrostatic fluid is if if you have an external source for it, is that it can accommodate heavy loads at low speeds because there's you don't need the relative motion of the parts in order to generate this fluid layer, and so even at low speeds and, and at startup, uh, you have enough uh, lubricating fluid in between the parts in order for them to spin and not wear out the bearing uh, surfaces, whereas in a hydrodynamic fluid arrangement you have to wait for the parts to spin up, right? There's going to be some period where you're spinning and just rubbing hard surface against hard surface before you get to enough speed 
where you were pushing the fluid underneath the parts and, and creating, you know, causing the, the, the shaft, say, to hydroplane on top of this liquid film. And so you'll, you'll generate a certain amount of wear before you get things up to speed to reduce the friction there. Gotcha. So when I spray WD-40 into my skateboard wheels, um, is that a combination of the two or is that hydrostatic? Uh, that's neither. Neither? Oh, that's the, uh, that's the lubrication. Right. So, so typically, I'm assuming you have ball bearing. Yes. Roller bearings. And so typically those are a rolling contact. Okay. And so there may be a certain amount of that in, in the, the bearings, but primarily uh, we consider those to be rolling contact. And it is with the journal bearings that we'll talk about shortly. Oh, that's right. Uh, where that we just have surf, surf, surface on surface contact where this, this hydrodynamic versus hydrostatic condition uh, is most important. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So uh, we, had, we had the contact. We could either have sliding friction or rolling elements. We could have non-contact, which may start from a sliding element, but then can become non-contact as we put this, uh, this film of lubricant in between the parts. Uh, we can have non-contact from magnets. We can create magnetic bearings that uh, cause the, the shaft or moving part to be separated from whatever the stationary part is. Like a maglev train? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Of course, it's it's more expensive. You need more hardware. You need more sophisticated control systems. Uh, but that is certainly possible in many very precise systems. Or you you know, uh, if you need a very precise shaft position, uh, many times it's done with magnetic bearings these days. Hmm. I wonder if that's what they're doing down at the uh, the LIGO in Louisiana. And there's the second one up in Washington. I'll say <laughs> the physics experiments that are detecting the gravity waves you need mm -hmm. you need very very precise precisely positioned mirrors to measure the reflection of the laser beams like you're you're doing like millimeter less than millimeter movements of these these mirrors to get them all lined up right mm, but i would think they would just but once they had them aligned i would think they'd lock them down stationary are they are they moving mirrors it's a great question <laughs> So this is so you would use a magnetic bearing when you want something to be moving all the time, right? You wouldn't. Yes. You you would not. Is is there a way to lock down a magnetic bearing just to hold it into place? There's no. Well, I there may be, but but there's little sense in doing that. Right. If you're going to go to the expense of having a a magnetic bearing that you typically want that, so you 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 could turn something at a very high speed and and uh, very precisely uh, center the the shaft in the in the opening. Mm -hmm. I think we need to, to have a physicist slash mechie come on and tell us how this thing works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, if any of our listeners are uh, skilled in the uh, in the science of magnetic bearings, uh, let us know. If you, if you, yeah, if you work at LIGO, we will let you on the show for free. We won't even charge you. <laughs> are you sure? Yes. That's, pretty, that's being pretty you generous. I'll even send you a microphone <laughs> and headset because that would be cool. I only ask that okay. you maybe give me a tour when I, if and when I come down. All right, and the uh, so the the final method of, of friction reduction is is what's known as a flexure uh, bearing, and that is a type of device where the bearing actually uh, deflects, deforms, uh, in order to create the the movement. And so, probably the one of the most simple uh, examples of this is the lid on a on a box of Tic Tacs. <laughs> you know, you flip open that lid, and the lid actually flexes. And so you have movement between the part of the lid that covers the opening and and uh, the rest of it. Uh, you don't you know you yeah. don't have to have a very sophisticated bearing there 
but you end up with this rotational, uh, relative rotation between the two parts due to the this flexure bearing. So yeah. uh, I get well, that one right not... off the bat. I don't have any stupid <laughs> questions. Uh, does the color of the Tic Tacs matter? The flavor? <laughs> only sometimes. Okay. Okay. That's a special because, case. Because we know in everything in engineering, the answer is always sometimes. Sometimes, yes. <laughs> the the off-gassing of the, the orange Tic Tacs really corrodes that, that one. <laughs> right. Do Tic Tacs off-gas? I don't even know. I, maybe. I, I don't... Again, we need a Tic Tac expert. All right. If you work for, I don't even know who makes Tic Tacs. But if you if you do, if you do know and, and you work for somebody who makes Tic Tacs, <laughs> let us know. Oh, they're Italian. Made by Ferrero. All right. If you work for Ferrero manufacturing Tic Tacs, you can come on the show for free as well. <laughs> Man, you're getting, you're getting out an awful lot of these free entries. Yeah, people love our guest shows. <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. Can't bring in that sweet, sweet non-advertising money if we don't have guests. <laughs> We've got to put the proverbial asses in the proverbial seats. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we d- we don't want to cut off that uh, that money flow because Lord, it's rolling in right now. Oh yeah. So again, we to talk about the the contact conditions which affect what kind of bearing you want to use. Uh, again, typically when we're talking about sliding contact situations, not roller bearings. We'll talk about being in a full film condition where, whether because of hydrostatic or hydrodynamic film generation, uh, we have a full film condition where there's no physical contact between the bearing surfaces. Although it is worth noting that having this this uh, film, this liquid film, does not mean that friction has entirely gone away. As we go, as the shaft speed increases, uh, we start putting more and more shear on the fluid, and we we have to produce uh, uh, more and more torque on the shaft in order to uh, keep movement going as the uh, as the speed goes up. So uh, there is some friction, even though it's it, we have this fluid condition. But obviously, the this fluid boundary condition is is mu- has much less friction than if we have a solid to solid sliding. And then if there's some part where there is where the load is partially carried by the bearing surfaces, that's called a boundary condition. A mixed condition is somewhere between the full film and the boundary condition. And then finally, if if there's no lubrication, no liquid film at all, then we have what's called a dry condition. And so your load is car- carried in, uh, completely by the bearing surfaces. Now, that's not always bad. There are bearings designed to work well in dry conditions, and we'll talk about those in just a bit. So, to give, uh, so to sort of give a summary of this, some of the elements that we need to think about when we select bearings, we have to think about the size of the bearings, obviously the loads that we're trying to carry, how big the device is, uh, so we know whether we can fit it into where it's going, uh, what kind of friction we're going to have from the bearing and what it will allow, uh, the axial load, uh, that is the thrust load, the radial load, we talked about those before, uh, the load variability, is this a st- is this a static load, a constant load, or does it go up and down all the time? Uh, what about load impacts? Is somebody going to you know, whack the shaft with a mallet every once in a while, or, or we have something like that going on? Uh, if you're designing something that moves smoothly at, at a constant speed, that's one thing. If you're designing a jackhammer and you have some component that needs to turn inside that, well, that's a different operating situation. Uh, the temperature range. Typically, these bearings are made out of metals. They will expand and contract. The fluids, the lubricants uh, will uh, have uh, temperature effects. 
what kind of t- a lubricant type are we going to use and, and how are we going to maintain lubricant cleanliness? Uh, what's the operating life of the, of the bearing? Can the bearing tolerate misalignment? Are we in a corrosive atmosphere? Is there something nasty in the, in the atmosphere that's going to eat at the bearing elements, uh, components? Uh, is there dirt in the air, environmental dust, particulate, that's going to get in on the balls and, and, and lower the, uh, the operating life? What's the hardness of the shaft? That may have an effect. And so we have all these engineering terms or these engineering issues that we have to worry about. And finally, we have to worry about uh, things, simple things, straightforward things like availability. It's a, this is great. This, uh, you know, this, uh, this uh, bearing may be great, but can we actually get it? And uh, of course, associated with that is cost. Can we afford it for the product that we're trying to develop? Which is always king. <laughs> it is always king. So the good news is, whereas, you know, uh, Carmen, you and Brian talk about uh, how quickly uh, electronic components appear and disappear, the good news is for us mechanical types that, that have bearings, uh, the numbering the numbering scheme on bearings is pretty consistent. A lot of the manufacturers use the same uh, numbering scheme, so you can read between uh, manufacturers to see what it is you're you're getting. Uh, and the other one is that they don't change very quickly. I mean, they may add; they're all adding products all the time, but they're usually not taking it away. So never obsolete a bearing. It 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 happens, but it happens at a lot uh, a much less uh, rapid pace than it does. It sounds like for your electronic components. So you're saying there's no Moore's law for uh, mechanical components <laughs> forcing you into obsolescence every two years? <laughs> uh, no, I I don't know as there is such a thing for <laughs> mechanical components. They seem to they seem to last for quite a long time. That I mean that doesn't mean that you don't find some component that you really like and they quit making it. Or more often, what happens is they got they get bought out. You know, you you find somebody that makes a part you like, and then somebody else buys them out, and they uh, they combine manufacturing, and you can never get quite the same thing again. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's just unhappy then. <laughs> do they do like ICs, well, I, where they offer you a uh, a buyout time? You know, like if we're going to discontinue, you know, linear regulator one hundred and one or something, uh, and so and so needs it, we'll say, hey, listen, you can do a, a last time buy, and they'll place an order for a million parts or whatever, and then that way they have their stock for the next five years or whatever. Do they do that with bearings and mechanical components? If you really need that screw or that shaft or I, I'm sure that if I were working for an auto manufacturer that they would have done mm-hmm. so. But I was always working for small companies or machine shops that, or myself. And so no, no one ever called me to ask. If <laughs> you I were wanted. lucky if you ever found out it went obsolescence before you designed it in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was, that was it. Usually I didn't know until I tried to order the part and they go, oh, we quit making that six months ago. It's like, oh, crap. Now I have to go back and redesign this entire assembly. <sighs> Thanks for the heads up, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the other thing is is that uh, a lot of my work was done in the pre-internet era, and so uh, uh, these days, you know, you just immediately go and and check something online to make sure it's still available. But in those days, I was mostly dealing with catalogs, and sometimes those big catalogs only got published once every two or three years. Yeah, they wouldn't do an errata issue in the meantime of like, no, 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 this is gone. Oh, I'm sure they would, but what did I need with all this extra pieces of paper that? That's you know, sending out to people. You only got so many bookshelves. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, so we've kind of laid down the basis for bearing. We've we've got the terminology in place. So now we can talk about the uh, basically the the two big types of bearings: journal bearings or, or plain bearings, uh, and roller bearings, which have a a number of uh, 
varieties, but typically roller bearings come in either the ball variety, so uh, ball bearings, or they have rollers, and so they're roller bearings. And so we'll talk about the differences between ball bearings and roller bearings and all the different uh, variations on that with their spherical bearings and needle bearings and taper bearings. And so we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, the idea is to, in, in this episode, is just to give those who have a vague notion of what bearings do this, this big picture of the differences between plain bearings uh, or journal bearings and, and roller bearings and where one might use one instead of the other. Excellent. Okay. Well, so let's work first on plain bearings. Uh, as those are by far the simplest because there are no moving parts. You have just a solid, basically a solid sleeve uh, that you've done something to that sleeve in order to try to reduce friction. So these are known as plain bearings uh, or journal bearings or sleeve bearings or radial bearings since they take mostly radial loads or rotary bearings. And they're also known as bushings. So somebody will say, well, do you have a bushing? A lot of times they're just talking about this journal bearing, something that will allow a shaft to to freely turn inside it. Gotcha. So like uh, on my car, uh, the rims, I guess, are sort of like a, a plain bearing. Well, I mean, there's a bearing in there, but... The rims? Yeah. I mean, the, or there's a bearing inside the rims. Well, there's a, there's a, you have an axle bearing at the center of your wheel, but that, that's, a, that's a roller bearing and not a bushing. Okay. Sorry, I'm just looking. The Wikipedia page has a uh, an old wagon wheel on there, and one of the one of the types in the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> so that got me thinking about wheels. Right. So so a wagon wheel may very uh, an old you know Western wagon wheel, Conestoga wagon may very well have its wheels may turn on a plain bearing. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what that looks like. This is this is like a fancy car wheel. <laughs> this is this okay. is you know all our viewers or listeners finally uh, laughing at me because I don't know anything about mechanical stuff instead of just going off on electrical things. Well, that, isn't that what this uh, this podcast is all about? Yes, yes, turning the tables. Well, sh- not turning <laughs> the tables, sharing information between various engineering fields. That we do say that in our openings. <laughs> That's we in the title. It, what, yeah. What, whether we accomplish that or not remains to be seen. Huh? We, we do what we can. All right. Well, so these these plain bearings, uh, which are usually can be just nothing more than a solid sleeve, so a, you know a hollow cylinder, and so the uh, the outer diameter of the of the sleeve gets shoved into a housing, uh, usually pressed in uh, so that it doesn't come out, and then you have a little gap you know between the out outer diameter of the shaft and the, the inner diameter of the bearing or bushing, uh, slide the shaft in there, and then it can turn fairly freely. That's really what a, a journal bearing uh, is all about. And so, obviously, the, the surface finish of both the shaft and the bearing are important to, to reduce reducing friction. Uh, and there's a lot of work goes into selecting the right materials. So, a lot of times, these, these journal bearings will be made out of bronze, which tends to slide pretty well. The tin and the bronze tends to slide fairly well on, on steel shafts. Uh, it may be impregnated bronze, and so there there's a, a type of bronze called oil light, where there's actually a lubricant embedded in the openings and the gaps within the the bronze material. You can have uh, these bushings made out of uh, delrin, uh, which is a delrin is the Dupont name for acetyl resin, uh, which tends to be uh, fairly slick. Nylon, also another p- 
polymer that tends to, to have a relatively low uh, coefficient of friction. And uh, these days, in fact, there gets to be some very uh, high-performing metal polymer hybrids where they take a, the, a metal outside ring, so you can take that, that metal and easily press it into the housing without deforming the, the, the bushing, but maintaining a thin wall. You don't want this bushing to take up more room than it needs to. And at the same time, on the inside, they will coat the inside with materials like Teflon or, or some other type of very low coefficient of friction uh, material. So these bearings, these journal bearings, although very simple, are not unsophisticated. That There are companies that spend a lot of time making very high-performing uh, bushings, and if your choice is to use a bushing uh, or this journal bearing or a roller bearing and, and the, the bushing will work, you almost always want to use that because it's almost certainly going to be lower cost. It's lower maintenance. It just, it, if it will do the job, don't make things more complicated than they need to be. Definitely. You got to go about that when designing a system. Okay. So when we, we pick a bearing material, sometimes we pick the you know, we pick a, a high-tech version that has, uh, you know, this this uh, metal polymer hybrid and, and uh, can do things. But usually those are for lighter loads. Uh, you know, you get to big, heavy stuff. Sometimes you just need, you know, bronze and steel. Uh, and then it becomes, you know, the lubrication and, and the, the surface finish uh, becomes really important. Uh, one of the things that's, the other things that's really important is that you usually want to have one element clearly harder than the other element. Usually you want a hard shaft and you want a soft bushing or bearing. Uh, if for no other reason that if, if one's clearly harder than the other, then only one component wears out, usually the bushing or bearing, uh, and then that's the one that needs to be replaced. And so you're not equally having to replace shafts and bearings at the same time because they wear equally. So That makes sense. <laughs> that's one of the reasons that you that will will do uh, steel shaft and, and bronze bushing. The other thing uh, that's important here is if we have wet lubrication, then typically we we have a choice between oil and grease, and so the the difference usually is we use oil if we want something that can take away heat. If if heat uh, uh, transmission is really important to us, for instance, in the engine of car, we have oil pump. We use oil because that allows us to take away the heat. and We can cool the oil, uh, get rid of the heat. Grease doesn't allow us to do that. The, the, usually grease is very viscous, very thick. It's not circulating like oil would, uh, but it will provide the lubricity, which allows us to turn easily. And so uh, depending on what your situation is, you may have uh, grease or oil. Uh, but one of the things to keep in mind there is if you have oil again, you end up in these various situations. If you have oil present, uh, and you're waiting, and you have some sort of external pump. You immediately can, you have this hydrostatic condition. You you immediately can generate this fluid layer between the between the bushing and the shaft, uh, and now you're floating on that layer of film, uh, liquid film. Uh, if you if you don't have that, and you have to wait for the shaft to come up to speed to generate enough rotation that causes the, the this film uh, separation to occur, uh, then you're going to have some period of wear, uh, bearing wear. Uh, before you come up to speed. And the other consequence of this is that if you uh, you have these uh, films, while they separate the two, the shaft and the bearing, they don't sh separate it with constant dimension. And so it, the shaft is not going to operate perfectly centered in the bearing at all times. And so if that's a problem, if, if a very slight, minute 
movement of the shaft center line is not permissible, then you may not want to use a, a plain bearing. So it's not very forgiving, it sounds like. Well, actually, so a, a journal bushing is, is actually more forgiving than a roller bearing, which we'll talk about next, in that uh, if you have, say, you have shaft misalignment or you have oscillations in the in the shaft or, or you know, you have a lot of uh, impact to the shaft and, and you, you know, the, the bushing is soft and it will absorb some of that. You have the liquid in there to absorb some of the, uh, uh, the movement, uh, then it will be more forgiving than a roller bearing would be. Okay. But in just terms of like shaft misalignment and whatnot, it doesn't, uh, doesn't really like that too much. Well, yes, it doesn't like it, but roller bearings really don't like it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so uh, with all, all types of, of bearings, the, really the failure mode comes from, well, it comes from misalignment is an, uh, a big cause. If, if the, the shaft is somehow loaded so that it is misaligned and not square with the, with the bearing that will cause wear, uh, premature failure. And again, dirt or foreign material. So whether you have dry contact, you have the Teflon stuff, or you have oil, you have grease, whatever it is, you get dirt, you get uh, metal shavings, you get something into your lubricant, then that gets in between the shaft and the, and the bearing, and you're going to end up causing that, that bearing to fail uh, prematurely. So you do, at all times, want to make sure that, that the area around the bearing is kept as clean as possible. And if you're using a lubricant, that you try to keep that as clean as possible. So if you if you decide you want to use a journal bearing, uh, then one of the one of the main things you have to decide is is how big a bearing you need. And typically, when you go at least trying to make a first choice, you'll find what are called PV values. And so P for pressure, V for for velocity. And so P is the pressure on the projected bushing area. So it says you if you look at the whatever load you're putting on the bushing, and you just chop the uh, you chop the bushing in half, you know, midline, and so you look at it from top down. Mm-hmm. Then, how much, whatever area is exposed, projected from that top view, uh, is your cross-sectional area. You you take the the pressure or the force down, divide it by that cross-sectional area that gives you pressure, and then you have v the velocity, which is the wear surface velocity in feet per minute. And so, uh, you take that product, that PV value, and most of the Spec sheets for the plain bearings will give you values for how big a bushing, how much surface area you need, that kind of thing. Is this like a standard figure of merit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you do something similar picking out FETs too for uh, switching regulators. You know, you want to look at the ratio of on resistance to gate capacitance. Yeah. So this PV value is sort of an easy way to make a you know rough back of the envelope calculation as to uh, what size bearing you need. Yeah, that sounds exactly like trying to pick out a power FET. Okay. You know, it, with the RC, you know, if you get a FET with a super low resistance, to get a low resistance FET, it has to be bigger. So the pass- capacitance goes up. You have to worry about how, uh, how how your gate driver can handle driving that sort of load. And then similarly, if you get a very small gate capacitance, you can switch it fast. The RDS on, the on resistance usually goes up because mm-hmm. it's a smaller FET. Mm-hmm. So you got to kind of play the values off each other and make a trade-off. Yeah. Sounds like a similar concept. Yes, yes. This is pretty much, <laughs> I get this part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, and so if you're, if you're uh, building something with this, these, these sleeve bearings come in, just like FETs, come in a variety of shapes and forms. Uh, you can buy the, 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 these uh, journal bearings as just plain sleeves, 
which are you generally press in. Uh, they can come flanged where they've got on one end, they'll have a flange that sticks out. And so sometimes that flange is good for if you can't find any other way to press the bushing in, you can use that flange to push it in. A lot of times that flange gets used as a thrust uh, bearing surface. That is, if you have something, your, your shaft is going to thrust, uh, typically a journal bearing can't resist th- thrust, axial load. Uh, and so you can use that, uh, that flange surface where the shaft can ride up against that flange surface and now you have another wear area. Uh, but uh, sometimes that, uh, especially at lower speeds, you can you can use that uh, uh, to resist uh, your thrust load. Uh, and I and I guess the other place for people that are new and are sort of looking, it's like, well, I don't have some place in my housing where I can mount this. What do I do? The typical application are are devices called pillow blocks, uh, which are blocks of metal. Usually, uh, they don't always have to be metal, but a surface that has usually bolt holes at the bottom of it, so you can bolt that to your surface. And then it it has pre-drilled bores in it into which are already pressed or you can press your, your bushings and that way that uh, you can attach your, your bushings to whatever device you already have. Cool, cool. All right. So that is the main idea of plane bearings. They have, you know, the, the pros are they're inexpensive, they're low, very low maintenance. They occupy a small volume, can carry large radial loads, they're better than anti-friction bearings or roller bearings for heavy loads or shock loads. Uh, the downside is they have a higher starting tor- torque, uh, a lower types, lower top speed than uh, roller bearings. And uh, without this, without say the flange or a thrust washer or something, they can only support radial loads. So again, right bearing for the right application. Any thoughts on uh, plane bearings before we go to roller bearings? Nothing profound, no. <laughs> so like a door hinge would be a, a plane bearing, or would that be a form of a, a roller bearing? No, that would that would be a plane bearing. That would be exactly that's exactly what it is, is yes. a plane bearing. Totally getting it. All right, you've reached at least one person with this. Okay, so you, so so the pin of your door hinge, right, is your shaft, and then yep. the, the, the hinge part is is the bearing portion and it turns and you put some sort of lubricant, usually you know, a graphite lubricant in there. And it lasts mm-hmm. for many, many years. And, and so uh, well-designed journal bearings can last many, many years. And, and uh, especially on, you know, you need heavy loads or shock loads or something that uh, we'll talk about some of the, the advantages and disadvantages of roller bearings. But in the right application, a journal bearing is great. And if, if you don't need the cost and expense and complexity of a roller bearing, by all means, use a journal bearing. And you are correct. A door hinge is exact, ex, a perfect example of a plane or journal bearing. Cool. I'm going to be an expert after this and open my own machine design shop. Excellent. Can I come work for you? Yeah, we'll see. I don't know if you're quite <laughs> uh, quite Parisi, Parisi engineering material. <laughs> it's very exclusive. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep working at it. Maybe someday I'll, I'll climb to your, your exacting standards. All right. Well, send me a CV anyways, just in case. All right, I will do that. So the other primary uh, form of bearing is a roller bearing. And so like with journal bearings, there are many variations on this, but they they usually come in two main flavors, that is either ball bearings or roller bearings. And so the different, the only difference is the type of rolling element. In one, we have balls that roll around, and in the other, we have rollers or little cylinders or barrels that roll around. So the ball bearings, most people have seen a ball bearing 
going back to the skateboard uh, example. Going back to the skateboard example, uh, the it's it's not real complex. It has a, the the outer ring is called the outer race. The inner ring is called the inner race. And there's a separation. The obviously the outer race is bigger than the inner race. And then in between the two races, we put balls or rollers. And if it's a ball bearing, we put balls. And then once the balls are in between the two races, we will put what is called a cage, or it's also known as a retainer or separator, but we have a cage that basically keeps the spacing between the balls so they don't all bind up, get get right up against one another. Okay. So the the most interesting part of it is, well, how do you get those little balls? It looks like a tight assembly. How do you get the little balls into the gap between the two the two races? Do you start with a straight uh, piece of stock, I guess, slide the ball bearings in, and then spin it around and turn it? Well, that that's an interesting concept, but that's not how they typically do it. <laughs> Good idea, but wrong. <laughs> Uh, no, they, they, it is already the, their rings, you know, they're fixed rings. And so we, as we talked about in the steel, they will, uh, they will turn these rings to be approximately the right direction, uh, right dimension. Then they'll heat treat them to harden them. Uh, and then they will grind them to the right dimension. And so they'll grind the, uh, for the outer race on the outside of the outer race, it's usually flat on the inside of the inner race. Usually it's a curve to accommodate the balls. So the balls can fit in this little groove. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then similarly on the inner race, the OD of the inner race has a similar groove for the balls. And then the ID of the inner race is flat again. So you basically, you, you have uh, parallel surfaces on the, what becomes the OD uh, and ID of the bearing. Uh, but the way they put this together is they, they, they pull the ID, the inner race, they put it inside the outer race, they pull it all the way to one edge. And so you, you leave a big gap to one side and then you drop the balls into the opening and then you force, you kind of work your way and force the, the inner ring back in the direction of the gap and force the balls around the corner. And eventually the balls sit in between the inner race and the outer race. And, and once it's in there and you put the, you put the cage on it so the balls can't move relative to one another, uh, then it's pretty darn impossible to get the, the inner race to separate from the outer race without destroying the bearing. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, uh, you can make, you can make bearings out of any number of materials, uh, just as you make the uh, journal bearings or bushings out of any number of materials. But typically, uh, at least, uh, here in the U S it's, they're made out of, uh, 52-100 steel, which is a hardened steel, uh, 1% chromium and 1% carbon. Um, can you, can you get creative and pay more money to get, uh, you know, this 5150 steel, but then between the ball bearings and the steel, maybe throw a layer of Teflon in. Would that not get you anything? Well, I don't I don't know as it would get you anything. To reduce the friction between the balls and the, the races? Uh, well, you're relying on – here you're relying not on – it's not a sliding contact. It's a rolling contact. Mm-hmm. So so it's you're – wanting, you're wanting the surfaces to be very hard and to roll easily against one another. Gotcha. Uh, now you can. So some people have, uh, and and here again, note that the material the material for the balls and the material for the races are pretty much the same. It's not like we have one soft and one hard. They're both hard materials. They're both the same materials hardened. Um, That's true because you never replace just one part or the other. Right. Uh, right. And so you can. Uh, some people uh, uh, manufacturers will make 
the bearings out of uh, 440C stainless steel. Uh, if rust mm-hmm. is a concern, if you're in a, if you know you're in a wet environment, you don't want your bearings to rust. You can make them out of stainless. Uh, you can also, if and this is where I thought you were going when you were first talking about the Teflon, is is you can make the the balls and races out of ceramic. Uh, and so ceramic balls can be made with uh, uh, greater I don't know what the right spherosity, you know, roundness. <laughs> Uh, and, and they, they tend to be, they tend to weigh less. So if they can operate at higher speeds, uh, they tend to cr- have less heat, less friction. Um, mm-hmm. and it used to be that they were like a thousand times more expensive. No, so no one used ceramic, uh, balls in their, in the ball bearings. But, uh, I haven't, I mean, I haven't been in machine design for a while, but my understanding is that that cost is coming down pretty, pretty rapidly. Uh, and so you can get, you can get, uh, ball bearings that have uh, just the ceramic balls with sta- steel races, or you can get them with, uh, you can get them uh, to have ceramic races uh, on the inner and outer race as well. Huh. Interesting. I wonder if that played along with ceramic capacitor technology at all too. Uh, there might be a that, that used to be very expensive, and you couldn't get high capacitance, but now it's you know changing and getting cheaper and more capacitance with the ceramics I oh, if okay. that, that plays together at all well cer- certainly uh what what does happen is manufacturing advances you know as yeah. the, as the year goes as the years go by people figure out how to make things more quickly and less expensively and that that helps all of us who are engineers who you have to use those components correct i was just wondering if there's one thing that drove somehow we oh man we could do ceramics a lot better than we used to <laughs> well Right, I, we need a material scientist now. This is just a gold mine for potential future guests to ask. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So when you have a ball bearing, typically, you know, it comes in different forms as you would have, say, flan- you might have a flange general or a pl- flange plane bushing. You can get your ball bearings in a standard form, which, you know, has a plane ID and OD. It can be flanged. So sometimes again you want a flange surface, and so one of the uh, the, the usually the OD will have a flange uh, area, so you can push it up against the housing. Uh, sometimes it'll have a groove in the outside uh, race, and that can be used. You can use a retaining ring, um, so basically a ring you can expand, move it into place, and then snap it into the groove, and you can use that to retain uh, to hold the the uh, ball bearing where you want it relative to the housing. Okay. Um, and, and then one of the other things that that I hadn't mentioned as part of part of the ball bearing is you can, in addition to the the races and the balls and the cage, uh, you can also have shields or seals. And so sometimes you don't want those balls exposed to, say, metal shavings or dirt, whatever it is. And so you can get usually metal shields, which are bits of metal that are connected to the outer race and point down towards the inner race. And there's a teeny tiny little gap, you know, basically a little air gap between the two so they don't rub. Uh, but basically what you're trying to do is block out any foreign material from getting into your, um, into your bearings or your balls. Yeah, I think, I think they do that for skateboard wheels, but it's been a while since I've taken one apart. <laughs> okay. And, and if you don't use a shield, then you can use what's called a seal where you actually usually have a flexible material, you know, uh, a rubber or a polymer, that actually has a lip that rubs against the inner race and and gives you a physical seal uh, from from dirt and dust and that kind of stuff getting in. So if need be, you can take these measures to either a, either shield 
which doesn't guarantee that nothing gets in but doesn't rub. Or you can use a seal, which guarantees that nothing gets in, but the cost of you've got some friction there due to the seal rubbing all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely shielded or sealed skateboard bearings. But like I said, been a while. Couldn't tell you <laughs> what. <laughs> all right. So there was a there was a YouTube video that I saw, in, I don't know, last month or two, but, but somebody was talking about uh, the quality of ball bearings, and they showed uh, ball bearings from a Chinese manufacturer versus a German manufacturer. And uh, uh, my my point is not you know to to uh, draw any national hostilities between various nations, but to simply point out that there you do normally get what you pay for, especially in ball bearings. Uh, the you know the the spherosity, uh, if that's the right word, I don't know of the balls, how round they are, and the surface finish of the bearing of the races, and the tolerance between the size of the balls and the races, it, all that is very, very important. And uh, uh, we'll put a link to this YouTube video, but basically, if you take the, in this case, the Chinese bearing and spin it with your finger uh, on a shaft, it would spin for 10 or 15 seconds, so it would come to a stop. And you take the German ball bearing and you'd spin it with your finger and it would go for you know minutes. I can't remember exactly how long it went. Um, so, again, it's it's uh, depends on what you want. If 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 it's just important enough that your axles spin, and you don't care how long it spins, and you know this friction is not a big concern, well, sure, go with the less expensive product. Uh, but you can, if if need be, get some very precise, very high quality roller bearings um, that work very very well. Sounds a lot like trying to pick out capacitors. <laughs> I'm sure it's a, the, the cheap ones that fall apart. And- <laughs> <laughs> there's the not cheap ones that work really well. Right. Right. So, uh, as you pick out ball bearings, you, you have the, uh, uh, the same sort of problems you have with journal bearings. So, uh, let's first of all, talk about sizing it. So again, as you had the PV numbers for a journal bearing, you have what are called DN values, D being diameter and N being speed and RPM and being a common variable for representing RPM speeds. And so typically the D is the sort of average diameter, the ID plus the OD divided by two. And N is the top speed in RPM. And so you'll you'll look and, and see, you know, based on my needs, you know, what are the DN values? And, and you'll find usually for most manu- uh, bearing manufacturers a, t- a list of or table of DN values that, that help you sort of figure out the right size. Um. You'll also, depending on the load and what you're asking the bearing to do, uh, most manufacturers will give you what are called L10 numbers, uh, L10 life, and that is the that's how many millions of rotations can occur before 10% of the bearings fail. So, you know, a million rotations sounds like a lot, but if you have a shaft turning at you know 10,000 RPM, it doesn't take long to rack up a million rotations. Yeah, you're gonna hit that pretty quick. <laughs> um, I'm surprised there's not, or may, maybe I just because I don't know anything about. It, I'm surprised there's not a, uh, you know, in this back of the envelope number. There's nothing for the number of balls in the bearing. That seems like it would also be important. Or do you just try to cram as many as you can in there? Um, well, the the number of balls is dependent upon the size of the. Yeah. Uh, so for a given bearing. size, do you do you try and get you know because you could have four in there and make it so they never touch, but they'll slide around, I guess, a lot. 
Right. So there's, I'm, I'm not a bearing designer. And so uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the, the play is, but, but you can imagine that, you know, generally you want small bearings to go with the small shaft mm-hmm. and, and you don't want your, if you have a 10 millimeter shaft, you probably don't want a 200 millimeter diameter bearing to go with it. Yeah. You know, you'd like something maybe 50 millimeter. You, so uh, that limits how big, based on what the ID shaft size is and how big the OD is, you sort of limit yourselves on how big the balls can be. And that yeah. sort of limits how many you can put into the diameter. Mm-hmm. So you generally, once you have your given diameters and everything, you, you typically just put as many as you can in there then? Well, I, I'm sure that it's more sp- Within reason. Yeah. Gonna, I, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it has to do too with, with what kind of, stress loading you're putting on the the bearing surfaces that is you know each each bearing is going to deform based on the material it will deform so much and that will be how much stress is on this on the interface between the the ball surface and the race surface uh and i'm sure there's there's uh, uh bearing designers you know have some some means of of determining that but but yeah. if you're if you're just going and selecting a bearing basically you go and look okay they'll tell you what what is the they'll give you a max radial load loading gotcha for the for the bearing <laughs> and then once you have that max radial load then you go look at the speed you know these dn values you can uh, look at or you can look at the bearing the l10 life uh to tell you know give yourself an idea of how long that that bearing would last in the, the application you have in mind gotcha gotcha okay this is all, this is all actually very interesting <laughs> well good good so um as we talked about in the with journal bearings, we have this problem with axial loading. That is thrust loading. Is that there's in just a standard journal bearing, there's no resistance to axial loading, unless you have the flange or you have a thrust washer. You do something uh, to take care of it. Now that's not true of ball bearings. Uh, the most typical type of ball bearing is what's called a single deep groove bearing. It's also known as a Conrad bearing, but basically. You've, you've put a deep enough groove in the race of the bearing so the ball sits up in there and not only does it resist radial loads, but, but there's enough contact, the, the, the points of contact in there are such that it it's not, it's not, doesn't take you know, great thrust loads, but it can withstand a certain amount of rux, uh, thrust load, axial load. And so as you try to move the shaft from side to side within there, the, the ball contacts that, that arc uh, the, the race, the groove it's rolling in, and provides a certain amount of side-to-side resistance. And so it will handle a lot of radial load, and it will at least ha- handle light to moderate axial loads. Now, there are times when you need more than that. You need higher thrust resistance or, or, or an ability to handle higher axial loads. And so then you can get bearings that are called angular contact bearings. And the idea being that instead of being loaded so that it can handle axial loads sort of you can imagine that that the groove at the top uh if you have the ball sits up in the groove it can you can push to the left you can push to the right and it will withstand uh movement in either direction uh mm-hmm. the manufacturers generate these ac- angular contact bearings where you you basically put the contact uh say like to the top left and the bottom right or to the top right and the bottom left so that basically they have no resistance in one direction but a lot of resistance to an axial load in the other direction. And so when you have that, now you can start mounting these angular contact bearings either face-to-face or back-to-back or in tandem, which means 
the direction with which they resist axial load. And most com- the most common one is back-to-back so that it will resist loading in either direction. It'll, it'll act like a single deep groove bearing, but will give you a lot more thrust resistance or, or an ability to uh, withstand um, axial loading. So that's a little more. That's a little more sophisticated. If you're if you're getting into axial loading and you need to be reading the the bearing manufacturers handbooks and and uh, coming up to speed. But uh, if you come across that term angular contact bearing, that's what they're talking about. Is they've they've adjusted the points of contact within the bearing so the balls are are riding on the races in such a way that they really resist thrust in one direction or another. Cool. So do you have to worry about installing them properly then? Or you just slip it on the shaft and go. No, oh, absolutely, yeah. So, so because they because they resist thrust in one direction, you absolutely have to make sure that you have it aligned in the right direction, mm-hmm. or else it's not going to work. It's like, it's like putting a diode in backwards. Yeah, yeah, or a polarized capacitor. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, you definitely have to do that. And we'll t- we'll talk a, a little bit about matched bearing pairs, in which case you definitely have to make sure you have that uh, set up correct. So. So that's the main idea with a, a ball bearing, uh, is that you you have the inner race, outer race, you have the ball that turns, and you you generate high rotational speeds, great performance. The cost is, you know, the downside is they're heavy, they're noisy, they're subject to rust, they require lubrication, and they have to be maintained. But the, but obviously, you know, you look at all the devices that use bearings, they do work, they are reliable, they are proven technology. Yeah, yeah, we've been using them for hundreds of years, if not more, for a reason. Right, right. So the 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 other thing, if it's not a ball bearing, uh, then it's typically a roller bearing, and so a roller bearing means instead of a ball, the rolling element is a cylinder, and so generally this is put in sideways, so the you know it's a, like a barrel rolling on its side. the The reason we do this is that, as you can imagine, the the amount of force that the ball can handle is limited by the the stress caused by that ball trying to be pressed into the bottom race. And so if you flatten out the the ball so that it's like a barrel or a cylinder rolling along, then you have a flat surface on a flat surface. You can make the race uh, flat. And now you distribute the load and it can take more radial loading. It can withstand more uh, force. And so that is typically why we use uh, roller bearings. They tend to operate at slower speeds uh, but they can withstand much greater loads. And so, uh, for, for instance, if you uh, have ever replaced the uh, wheel bearing on your car, it's almost certainly a roller bearing. Mm-hmm. Can't say I've done that job myself, but... Okay. Well, and so the, so the variations on the theme. So if you understand that, we've, all we've done is we've replaced the, the, the ball with a roller. That's a roller bearing. Yeah. And now... The, the variations on a theme, you can have a tapered roller bearing. And so that means that instead of it being like a barrel, it's more like a cone. And so there's one, one surface is going to be, you know, set will roll flat, but, you know, tends to want to roll in a circle type thing. Well, they counteract that by the, the, the other race has a sort of a conical surface that matches up with the conical shape of the, of the tapered rollers. Uh, but again, this, the main effect, this is like an angular contact ball bearing, it allows that roller bearing to withstand thrust in a certain direction. And if you take a pair of them, one aligned one direction and one the aligned the other, 
now your shaft setting with these two, you know, uh, tapered roller bearings can withstand thrust uh, in both directions. Awesome. And again, <laughs> pay attention to the way you plug them in. It's very important. Yeah. Now with a, with a tapered roller bearing, it's pretty hard to get them wrong because the matching race will only accept it in one direction. So yeah, not li- but, yeah. Li- much 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 harder to install a tapered roller bearing incorrectly than it is a angular contact bearing. Yes, but don't discount stupid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so now there's another variation on the roller is a spherical roller, and so here instead of it being a cylinder, it's more like a barrel, like a uh, you know. Uh, beer keg barrel. And so what that allows it to do is they, the race, instead of being flat, the, that the race that the roller runs in, it is curved. And so what that allows is a certain allow, um, amount of misalignment. So if your, your shaft coming through the ID of the bearing is cocked, then the rollers, the spherical rollers will allow the entire thing just kind of shift around in the, on the inside of the outer race and roll in that in that sort of curved area, and uh, will continue to operate. And so, you uh, if you if you know you may have to deal with misalignment, then you may see somebody use a spherical roller bearing uh, because you get most of the advantages of hand, handling high radial loads, but you also can accept a certain amount of uh, shaft misalignment. Cool, cool. Okay, and uh, another variation on theme is what are called needle roller bearings or needle bearings. And so typically this is, this occurs in a place where you want, you want the advantage of a roller bearing, but you have a really small area uh, to operate in and you can't afford the size of full size rollers. And so needle uh, roller bearings, the needles, the, the, they're, they, they tend to be very small in diameter and a little longer than, you know, the, the aspect ratio length to di- uh, diameter to length tends to be longer than for normal roller bearings. Uh, typically, you're looking at a ratio of at least four to one. So the length uh, to diameter ratio is at least four to one uh, on these needle bearings. And so they tend to go in areas where size is really at a premium uh, and they tend to, to operate at a, uh, they have a high radial load ca- uh, capacity, they're compact, but they tend to operate uh, at a little slower speed uh, than some of the bearings that have uh, the bigger rollers. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so good. that's sort of the overview of roller bearings. Any any thoughts on on that area? Nope, but it sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so we can probably think about uh, uh, wrapping this up. And so let me just talk a little bit about another thing that is is really important in in bearing integration into a device, and it sometimes gets overlooked. And that is two related concepts. One is of, of housing fit, and the other is of preload. And so, as you know, as we've talked about, we we have either in the case of journal bearings, we have certain films that we want to have sized correctly. And so, it's really important that you have the right surface finish, and you have the right sizing between the shaft and the bearing. You know, a too too little gap between the two. And th- that film that you want will never develop, and, you, and you'll be rubbing all the time. And too loose a fit, the too, gap is too big for that film to set up if you're looking for, for the, uh, the liquid film to uh, be created. And, and you end up with shaft rattle. You know, you, you, Typically, that's not something you want. That's if you have a journal bearing. If you have a roller bearing, then it's really important that the, the, the force of the, of the race against the balls 
and you know be uh, consistent. So generally, the the rule of thumb is that you want to use a press fit on the rotating element or on the rotating component. And so this means that usually the shaft is the rotating component, and so you want to press the inner race of the ball bearing onto the shaft so that the inner race turns with the shaft and that the outer race stays stationary in the housing. But of course, in order for that to happen, the outer race has to be, com- has, has to be correctly sized to the housing. If, if you have a four millimeter gap between the OD of the bearing and the ID of the housing, that bearing's it's not going to work correctly. The, the outer race is not going to be stationary. It's going to turn because it's, it can rattle in there. It's too much. It's too sloppy. So if you, if you're going to uh, design for bearing installation or you're retrofitting something with bearing installation, you want to take a look at the manufacturer's handbooks based on the size of the bearing and the shaft diameter and the, the bore diameter. They will give you, uh, particular measurements as to what kind of fit you should have on the bearing. And you can go in with a set of uh, micrometers or some sort of measuring device and tell, you know, how big is my bore, you know, check to make sure the bearing's okay. I'm, I've never had problems with the manufacturers not having the right bearing size. They're very good about manufacturing to their specs. Uh, but you want to make sure the, the bore is the right size, the shaft's the right size, especially if you sent the shaft in for rework. Uh, you know, somebody has had, may have... Uh, polished it up or they may have machined on it or they may have uh, uh, put some sort of uh, nickel material on it, say, to build it up so they can machine it back. You want to check to make sure you've got the right sizes because it's really important that the shaft is the right size uh, so that when you press the bearing onto the shaft, you have the right interference there. And and the, when you press the, the bearing into the housing, uh, that that's the right fit. And so just a, a important thing is when you you may have picked out the right bearing, but you're not done until you've correctly installed it into your mechanism. It's like the parasitics of, of board design. <laughs> the little things you don't think to account for on your first pass design. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the other thing is we talked earlier about this, this resistance to axial load. And especially on, on these angular contact bearings. Uh, typically, they're designed to to withstand a certain amount of give in one direction, but but we usually we want to sort of tighten that up, and so that's called that that preload that is the removal of whatever give uh, it has the bearing has uh, both in radial and axial directions. But but typically, I'm have been most worried about axial directions, and so you you uh, basically have to uh, basically squeeze the outer race from one side and the inner race from the other side so that you put enough force on this sort of preload the bearing uh, to be, be clamped really tightly into the point that, that you want it uh, positioned in. Uh, And this, this sort of stiffens the side to side uh, resistance of that, that bearing element. And so again, you can look in the manufacturing handbooks and they will tell you how much preload you need. Uh, In fact, if they, if you buy a pair of, these axial contact bearings, they have them already set up so that basically you just have to squeeze them until the two bearings go flush with one another and you've correctly uh, generated the preload you need so that the, uh, the bearing will operate correctly. So uh, if, if, you, if you're new to bearing selection and bearing design, be patient. There's, there's lots of this nomenclature and you, you look at the, uh, the selection stuff and it, it seems like they never tell you what you want to know, Right. 
you want to know, well, how much, how much load should I preload? Should I put on this thing? And they won't tell you directly. You know, you have to go through lots and lots of graphs uh, trying to figure out what it is they're meaning, but they are, they're trying to tell you exactly what their bearing will do without telling you how to design your application, right? Because they're in the bearing design business, not your design business. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like exactly uh, trying to read the data sheet for um, ICs. You're like, oh, I wonder how much current it draws under this set of circumstances. And they don't tell you exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, um, and if, it, you know, if you talk to a, a good applications engineer, they can give you a pretty good idea of, you know, what they've seen and what works and what doesn't work and where to start. And, and Lord bearings have been around for a long time. You know, you can just sort of look around to see, you know, get some ideas about what good applications are. But as with anything else, there is a, a different, you know, there's definite science to it. There's definite art to it, but uh, it's a, it's an, you know, at least for me, it's always been an interesting part of the, uh, the machine design process. These, these devices that seem so easy, uh, seem so, uh, ubiquitous and, uh, you know, you would think are so easy to pick out and select, but uh, it really is, can be quite a complex design process to find the right bearing. Yeah. It sounds like it. It's like once you dive into capacitors, you know, there's a lot more to <laughs> it than just throw the point one mic on the pins and go to town. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it, I mean, we've talked about that in several different, you know, whether you're picking out a steel or you're picking out a capacitor, or we talked about nuts and bolts in every area of engineering, right? There's, there's some amount of detail that, that somebody has to dive into and figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got to specialize in something. <laughs> well, that's good. That means we need more engineers, right? Exactly. Definitely more engineers to come on this show because we raised a lot of questions and probably get a ton of feedback about how I messed up. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm sure I got a few things wrong. We did get a few comments about, you know, uh, the steel uh, process where, where people pointed out a few details. So, I appreciate That's the true, yes. appreciate the feedback. None of it seemed major enough to uh, to go back and redo the entire episode. But uh, yes, that was that was listener Robert. I will only give his first <laughs> name, but uh, yeah, props to Robert for calling us out. Right, right. Well, speaking of needing more engineers, uh, so we we can use more guests. So if our listeners know somebody we should be interviewing uh, on the show, please let us know. And uh, we are absent, uh, both Adam and Brian, this evening, and. Uh, so perhaps by the next episode, they will be here to join us. We'll see. It depends on how the contract negotiations go out. Go. They're holding out for more money, but come on. <laughs> yes, they, they, they want their, their grab of the great riches that come along with being on this particular podcast. Exactly. And we're not doing it, damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, what do you think, Carmen? Uh, call this one done? Yeah. Yeah, I think we've... Uh, Covered everything there is to know about bearings, and I have to go, you know, set up my shop. All right. Well, again, once you're in business, let me know. I'll come work for you. Sounds great. All right. Have a good evening. All right. You too. Bye, Jeff. Bye, Carmen. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>